Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you enjoy this show, please tell a friend or colleague about it and help spread the word. If you want to also search for other episodes or learn about some of the other resources that are available to you, head over to theconsumervc.com. My guests today are Franklin Isaacson and Andrew Galecka, founders and managing partners of Coefficient Capital. Coefficient partners with entrepreneurs that build brands, tell stories, and engage customers across the digital and physical worlds, typically at the Series A. Some of their investments include Magic Spoon, Hawthorne, House, and Hydrant. We discuss how they think about Omnichannel, some of the insights they've learned from their consumer trends report that was produced in partnership with the new consumer, and the criteria at Series A. Without further ado, here's Franklin and Andrew. Franklin and Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you both? Very well. Thank you for having us on. It's great to be on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks again for taking the time. So I wanted to begin about just asking you both, what attracted you each to work in the world of consumer? Yeah, so for me, it's really all I've ever done. So it's an interesting question because I haven't thought about it in a while. I've really spent my whole career in the consumer industry. And I guess what initially drew me to it, I was always interested in economics and in uh, psychology and sort of understanding why people choose certain brands, understanding their behaviors and how that sort of impacts business has always intrigued me. So that really was the genesis of it. And then, as I said, I've really, um, you know, I started as a generalist in consulting, but lobbied my way to do as much as, you know, consumer work as possible. And have just worked in the industry ever since. And Andrew, how about yourself? Yeah. So my path to consumer was a little less direct in that I really have been historically more in sort of the media content space. That's where I was investing for a number of years and started to see consumer brands you know, leveraging content and storytelling and really media in interesting ways. And it kind of reached a point where a lot of the companies that I was seeing were selling products in some sort of way, shape or form. So it happened pretty naturally. And it probably ties to kind of the story of how Frank and I ended up teaming up to create Coefficient Capital pretty well in that you know we saw you know, these two worlds, Franklin's of more traditional consumer and mine of sort of tech, media and commerce intersect. Um, so we felt there was a very unique place in the market that we could put ourselves. And that's what we did. 
I love that. I love that. No, thanks both for sharing. And, you know, that's one of the things that I thought was very unique uh, when we first spoke about how you both came from consumer from two different lenses in terms of your experiences. Andrew, from the more maybe tech media side per se, and Franklin, you from maybe the more retail side. From each of these positions, what do you think is maybe the most overlooked when evaluating a e-commerce brand versus a retail brand? Yeah, interesting. I mean, I think typically look at it in a fairly bifurcated way, right? And I think we try and, and see things from a much more omnichannel perspective. So when we look at an opportunity, we don't just look at, you know, what are the online metrics or what are the velocities like in store? We really try to understand, you know, has this brand figured out what their strategy online is versus in store versus maybe an Amazon, say, uh, and then try and evaluate, you know, how well does this packaging work on Instagram, but also how well does it uh, work on, uh, on shelf? So I think the very combination of looking at it through both those vantage points is one of the things that sets us apart. And then we do a lot of consumer work. And I think that, you know, we really like to drill down and get to know brands and who their consumers are. And a lot of the time that we find that that's not always clear very early on, but as the brand grows, they start to get a better sense to who they're actually selling to and who their target consumer is. And that helps a lot, especially if you're trying to be an omnichannel brand, really having a good sense of who's buying your product or who you hope to buy your product um, really matters. No, no, I mean, thank you for that. What are maybe some of the differences when you're, you know, analyzing a successful DNVB versus maybe a brand that has done really well in traditional retail, but might not have an online presence? Yeah, I think, you know, the way that we look at it, and obviously there's so many digitally first brands today, is really the story that they tell and the way that they connect with the consumer, right? And we've seen, you know, many instances of brands that have been successful in doing that online and it's translated to, you know, positive retail experiences because the brand's been able to be built online. You know, they've, as I said previously, they kind of know their customer and they've done a really good job of doing that and building that connection. And then, you know, over time, hopefully you get really solid repeat purchase rates. And ideally what you end up doing then is being able to go into a retailer and say, hey, you know, I've been selling this product online for, you know, two years. And I have really strong repeat purchase rates. I know that people want to buy this product, you know, and it tends to resonate pretty well in our experience. Uh, enables you to have data that historically you wouldn't have been able to have. So uh, we've been pretty focused on that to date. Um, yeah, we've seen, we've seen it work. That's awesome. That's, that's great. Now, do you take a look at like brands that might already be in traditional retail, but don't have a DTC presence? And if so, does it ever make sense to maybe not actually have the brand have an online presence, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think first of all, there's brands that don't sell anything online, but actually have a very large online community. And then the question just becomes, how do you monetize that, right? So there's brands that are maybe more traditional consumer brands that are today exclusively sold through stores, yet when you go online, you find out that there's these very you know, large engaged communities, whether it's on Reddit or Facebook groups or perhaps even on their own sites. And so you see that the online engagement is there. And in some instances, as I said, it's just a matter of figuring out, well, how do you not monetize that? Or, convert uh, some of that to online sales. But listen, there are tons of examples of brands that, you know, where just the economics, you know, don't make sense to sell that product online. And specifically, I'm thinking about, you know, say it's a refrigerated product that is, you know, shipped in glass packaging that has maybe a lower price point 
well, it probably isn't going to make economic sense to sell that online, um, you know, unless sort of in bulk and there's sort of this demand to buy, to stock up on this product, which again is, is often not the case when there, you know, it's a shorter shelf life product. So it's certainly true that certain brands just make more sense at retail than they do online. Yeah, and then there are brands that do make sense online, but they've found, you know, tremendous success in retail, but they're leveraging, you know, as Franklin said, the offline world. So we're, we're investors in the brand Oatly, the oat-based products. And obviously they, they have a huge business in retail and, you know, online, you know, is still kind of in the early days, but they've used, you know, content community in such an interesting way where it's hard to say that that's not a digital brand in some way, shape or form, even though the vast majority of uh, sales still come from retail channels. No, and I really appreciate that example. That's really helpful. And, you know, I guess because we have, you know, quite a few listeners that are, you know, starting DNVBs and starting brands online, when brands maybe achieve scale online that maybe there's momentum or it makes sense to think about retail or an omni-channel strategy, what is the most challenging part of that expansion process? Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's an interesting question. I think the answer to that question has been evolving especially through you know, the past nine months of what we've been seeing in the market. But I think today, sort of this channel convergence has really been a big focus of ours. And I think anyone thinking about you know, brands you know, expanding, whether it's online to offline or offline to online, is that it's becoming you know, a little bit all the same in a way, meaning you know, if you want to go into retail, that's great. You still have to market through Instacart, right? That's a digital channel. You have to figure that out. You have to acquire customers through a channel. So digital marketing is still a part of that. So it's it's really this sort of convergence of these two worlds in so many different ways. And we found the brands that can navigate that effectively are at a distinct advantage. I think thinking you can just go into traditional retail today and be done, you know, it's not quite the same. I mean, we, we've had an Instacart is a good example because they're obviously leading the way in a lot of this. And I'm sure you saw the numbers, the number of users during the pandemic at the height. But on I mean, it, it, you know, it blew up essentially overnight, and a lot of that growth is sustained. But that's an important channel today. But it doesn't work if you're not in retailers, right? You have to, you know, you have to be in the retailers in order for Instacart to be effective. So everyone's trying to play catch up around that a little bit. So the landscape is evolving, and everything is kind of converging together, you know, and then you have Amazon, right? And that's that's the other piece of this in that brands that we're speaking to, you know, are now looking at Amazon. As, is that an e-commerce channel? Is that a retail channel? You know, should I approach that separately? Should I have a different strategy for Amazon? Usually that's the case, but it tends to get bundled together uh, with retail in some instances, just in, in the way that people aren't able to control the customer or have the customer data as much. So these things are all starting to become essentially, you know, one big you know, channel convergence. And, you know, we find that interesting and uh, we think there's a lot of opportunity there. People figure that out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's really helpful. And I totally hear you about Amazon. It's certainly a double-edged sword online where you don't get to control that customer experience. You become maybe just a listing per se. But at the same time, the search engine is obviously extremely powerful. And of course, so many folks across the world use Amazon. So it's certainly the double-edged sword there. Yeah. And I would just say anecdotally, what we've seen a lot of is sort of more sort of traditional DMVBs that then decide to build an Amazon strategy, tend to do so in tandem with some kind of a broader retail strategy. And the ones that don't do Amazon, generally also aren't doing retail. So it tends to get 
in our experience anyway, grouped together to some extent. That's an interesting trend that we've been noticing. So would you mind providing an example of that in terms of maybe an Amazon strategy that's also has worked in tandem with retail and then kind of their own channel, I guess, is separate? Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple of products that we, I mean, some of our portfolio, I can't go into specific names because some of this stuff they haven't, they haven't uh, announced yet, but, you know, they've, they've built strategy and pricing around Amazon the same way they would retail. They don't want to, in one instance I'm thinking about specifically, they've been very clear that you know, retail, while it was on the roadmap previously, you know, given COVID and the huge explosion they've seen in online sales, they don't think they need to do that. And that ties into Amazon, which was also on the roadmap, is they're just doing so well on their own site and the repeats are really strong. They don't need to, they don't need to do that. So it's, uh, you know, it's an evolving landscape. Absolutely. And thank you very much for sharing. I also want to jump in as well, because I know what's super exciting is you released this consumer report last month. I know this was a very, very long project and wanted to know what were some of the insights that you learned or were surprised by? Yeah, absolutely. So this is the, the report that we launched uh, together with Dan Frommer of the new consumer. And what we really wanted to do is sort of create a bit of a state of the union for CPG. And in order to do that, we had access to some proprietary data sources, including a Toluna, we ran, a Toluna study we ran of over three and a half thousand consumers, as well as data from you know, Nielsen and, and um, Second Measure, Ernest Research. And it was really very insightful. And, and what we found, and we looked at this you know, by demographic and sort of geography, but what we found was that a lot of the new behaviors that we've learned over you know, this last sort of eight, nine month period are going to stick. And in some cases, consumers actually prefer them. So one insight that I can share with you today is that you know, we spoke to millennials who had previously worked out in gyms and have now started working out at home, whether it's on Peloton or any other digital apps. Uh, well, 80% of those consumers actually said, you know what, we prefer working out at home. We're not necessarily looking to go back to the gym. And the implications of that are just vast, right? Because if you look at what that represents in terms of dollars that were previously spent on gym memberships that now essentially are up for grabs for new, you know, you know connect fitness companies or digital fitness apps, that's just a once in a generation shift, right? A movement like that within a market. And so that was one of the insights that I think was particularly interesting, how, you know, some of these new behaviors we actually prefer to what we were doing before the pandemic. Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, what I think is interesting about COVID is it's been now a long enough period where they actually, consumers actually have developed new habits, right? It's not just, you know, a month of change. It's now, you know, going on nine, 10 months of change. It creates a really interesting opportunity for us to start to size these markets, right? Because, you know, to use Franken's example of fitness, you know, the at-home fitness market was, you know, historically only been so big, right? If indeed people to the level that we believe they that they now won't go back to gyms, that at-home fitness market is much, much larger, you know, and that creates, you know, what could be a very interesting opportunity for a number of new companies, you know, new entrants to grow very quickly. So, you know, as you said, sort of this time of COVID is, you know, created all this sort of interesting opportunity, uh, uncertainty for sure. And then it's our job to try and figure out, you know, what's going to stick. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I mean, I'm also just curious with, you know, Peloton or Mirror or just other at-home fitness, especially in January with everyone having their New Year's resolution to see if the uh, daily active users skyrocket for those platforms as well. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. So I would love to learn as well as your story. I know we kind of jumped in there in terms of how you're just thinking about DMVB versus retail or expansion strategy, but I'd love to hear a bit more of your story in terms of how Coefficient Capital came together. As we all know, Anna Whiteman came on the show and talked a little bit about Coefficient, but would love to hear it in your own words as well. Yeah, and I mean, from my perspective, as I said, you know, I've been investing in the consumer space for you know, about a dozen years or so, and always focused on you know more traditional CPG brands that were at the forefront of you know the changes in the industry. But for the most part, you know, we're selling a physical product in physical channels, and so had previously been involved with brands like you know Vitacoco and Sir Kensington's um, and Oakley actually as well my previous firm and what I found myself increasingly doing was calling Andrew for advice right he was my friend who was doing tech media investing and you know previously we had very little to do with each other professionally but now I'm getting founders of my companies asking me hey you know what should we be doing with TikTok or what should we be doing with Snapchat and should we be hiring an agency or doing this in-house and what percent of our marketing budget should we allocate to these platforms and so I'm finding myself calling Andrew for advice who had invested in Snapchat channels and was very much au fait with all these platforms and similarly when analyzing new investments right I'm, I'm confronted with metrics at least I was a few years ago that I wasn't as familiar with you know how does CAC scale what are good retention rates for a specific cohort over time. And so again, kept calling Andrew for advice and to the point where we were now bumping into each other on deals where we're looking at, you know, a DTC food business. And I'm looking at that because they're selling you know, food product. And Andrew's looking at that because they're a content commerce platform, you know, leveraging technology to sell food to consumers. And he's asking me about the gross margins and the co-packer landscape. And again, I'm asking him about some of the DTC metrics. And so we realized that you know, a lot of founders today even still are having to choose between you know, do I raise money from a tech fund and they might be able to help me navigate Instacart and Amazon, uh, or do I raise money from a more traditional CPG fund who you know might be able to help me find the best broker for Target and get into Whole Foods? And we really want it to be that one-stop shop. And that really was the idea behind us coming together. Thank you. Thank you. No, that's really helpful. I would say, how do you think about the stage that you invest in at the Series A level when it comes to investing in brands? What are some of the metrics or milestones that a brand might have to achieve in order to get on your radar? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, this this can differ through the different, you know, platforms and, you know, product categories that we look at. But we, we like to see, you know, pretty strong product market fit when we invest. So we recently invested in a company called House, direct-to-consumer a spirits brand, you know, slightly early than we would typically invest, but obviously in spirits, they tend to grow very quickly and the product market fit was there and we've been tracking it. So we felt comfortable going a little early than we normally would, but we tend to sort of invest when companies are doing, we like to say, sort of a few million dollars in revenue. That tends to be when sort of the product market fit is there, you know, and we can really get our hands around, you know, who's the consumer they're selling to and frankly, where we can be most helpful as well. Yeah, we really feel that that Series A, you know, sometimes uh, can be a Series B as well, but that's a great entry point, right? Because at that point, as Andrew said, the company has revenues. You're able to talk to consumers, right? Why did you buy the product? And what were you buying before? And did you buy it again? And if so, how soon did you buy it again? And how often do you use it? So you're able to get some of those those uh, crucial metrics. And usually at that point, you have a sense of what gross margins are. You understand the unit economics. 
and that's really where we like to come in and then obviously you know provide the founders with capital and the resources to further accelerate their growth. That's excellent. That's excellent. And I appreciate the example with House. They Helena was at the last summit and she did an absolute terrific job there. And I mean it's an amazing, amazing brand that she and her husband have built. Really, really impressive. Yeah, amazing story. It's an amazing story between his sort of him being a third generation winemaker and her having made her career in Silicon. Silicon Valley, they're really sort of an ideal pairing to create a business like House, where they're selling a great quality product that's you know made from grapes of their own vineyard in Sonoma and then sold online, which is a very hard thing for uh, alcohol brands to do, right? Typically, you have to go through this three-tier system where you sell to the distributor, who in turn sells to a retailer or a restaurant. So most often, when you're buying a bottle of tequila online, it'll still go through that three-tier system, and you're not actually cutting out any middlemen. You're still getting it delivered from a local store. And what's great about House is that they've actually figured out a way to circumvent that, uh, and they're able to ship directly to 41 states. So it's really a unique capability in that very large and, for the most part, still relatively archaic industry. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's also something that I, uh, I've had a couple investors that just focus on food and beverage. And we kind of dive into the weeds there about the alcohol industry and just how it works and how archaic it is and how there should and needs to be a lot of innovation in that area. I'd also would love to talk about, you know, I feel like we went through this phase when it comes to investing in DNVBs or brands, consumer brands, where you had a lot of tech investors invest. Some got burned because, you know, in the early 2010s, late 2000s, you had these growth arbitrage opportunities for marketing, you don't really have that anymore. And so maybe companies that were perceived to be growing at this incredible pace weren't able to really continue that growth. And you didn't really see many like billion dollar outcomes. I'm just curious in terms of how you think about when you invest, how you think about returns and portfolio construction. Yeah, absolutely. I think what you're referencing is the market figured out that Facebook ad inventory isn't infinite, right? I think that that realization came about uh, fairly quickly. So obviously, you know, diversified acquisition strategy, you know, is obviously core to what we look at, you know, brands that can, you know, do things, you know, somewhat, and again, you know, House was our most recent investment, so it's a good example, is that they've been able to create, you know, a great story and great content around the brand that they've built and aren't reliant on, you know, any one paid channel. And that's what we, that's obviously what we like to see is that kind of diversity and then obviously not scaling too quickly. And I think to your question about, some of the more traditional tech investors that invested in you know, DMVBs historically is that this sort of growth at all costs, you know, sort of potential for billion dollar outcomes fairly quickly uh, doesn't necessarily fit that well with, you know, every consumer category or product. And, you know, that's something we try and understand. You know, we speak to the potential acquirers of these companies all the time. I mean, it's one thing that we're, we're, um, we're very tied into is, you know, who are they buying? What are they looking at? And the reality is there just aren't that many billion dollar outcomes in consumer products. Now, on the on the tech side, there's certainly more. And we do dabble. We do look at enabling technologies around products as well. But if we're talking about, you know, products themselves, it's just the outcomes, you know, can be somewhat smaller. Doesn't, doesn't mean to say they can't be great investments. You just need to be conservative amount of capital that goes into these companies. I mean, if a company raises you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, then, you know, a large outcome, you know, is required for those investors to see a return. So, you know, being a bit more realistic about the market you're operating in and ultimately where the exit will be, you know, I think that realization has happened for the most part. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that those are really, really great points. And for DNVBs, do you think that we're ever at the point, I know you can create a great maybe lifestyle business. And there's, I mean, there's lots of amazing lifestyle businesses that are just online DNVBs. But do you think that soon we might reach a point where you might, and of course, I'm talking generally here, but where you actually might invest in a company that actually doesn't need to go to retail? that can actually just stay online and be a, a DMVB maybe for life, or have we not really reached that point yet? Obviously, e-commerce penetration has gone up massively for, through COVID. I'm just interested to hear kind of your thoughts around that. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned it, right? So I think that pre-COVID, it was definitely possible. I think it, it always has been possible for, for that right kind of brand that can do that and can succeed through those diversified acquisition channels. But today, I think it's even more so the case where you know if brands can sustain the level of growth they've seen through COVID, I think they can stay you know purely you know purely online you know, and not have to go into retail as they scale. I do think that ultimately it makes sense for them to also want to go into retail, especially if they're thinking about acquirers down the line. I mean, we've had this discussion with a number of uh, brands recently, a number of founders, where they've said, well, you know, can't the ultimate acquirer you know, take us into retail? And it's a good point. Some of the retailers are thinking that, some of the strategists are thinking that way. But we do think it makes sense to at least show that your brand can turn you know, in a retail environment and that you know, traditional consumers will also embrace it. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a question really depends on the situation so much, Mike. I mean, there are, I would say in most instances, you do need to meet the consumer where they're at. And meaning if, you know, making it up 90% of toothpaste is still sold in store, then you probably need to be in store if you have a toothpaste company. That being said, you know, we're increasingly seeing examples of companies say that they sell a product that is personalized for you. The experience of buying that product online, getting that product made for you, being able to ask any questions online is in some cases just such a superior experience than going to a store and getting a product maybe that's not personalized or where you're not getting the advice. Now, of course, it could still be in the, on the store shelf. It can help with awareness. You could have a more generic product and there is value in that, absolutely. But we're seeing a number of businesses where just from the consumer's perspective, it's just a much better experience online. And I think that's one of the things that Andrew is referring to as well. Yeah. No, totally, totally. And I really appreciate both those responses. Maybe a better way to phrase it is, are you seeing brands delay going into retail? Maybe that's a better way to phrase it. So the short answer is yes. We are seeing brands that are choosing to do that, in part because, candidly, it's not easy to launch, uh, you know, in the COVID environment where a lot of retailers are still focused on just stocking their essential items. It's just, you know, you can't sample, you can't demo in a lot of cases uh, the way that you, you know, otherwise would with higher returns. So we definitely are seeing brands that you know are just doing a phenomenal job online and saying, you know, let's, let's delay that. At least for the time being. For the time being, uh, yes. Cool. Cool. And I mean, obviously, of course, you're in COVID. That does make a lot of sense. I'm just kind of curious to see, since now it seems like you can create a much bigger scale online since there's more penetration that we might see even after the COVID or rather when things get maybe roughly more back to normal, that you might see more and more brands delay going into retail. To put some numbers around it, right? I mean, I think pre-COVID, you know, depends a little bit on how you measure it, but those are low single digits of groceries were sold online in the U.S., and there are different investment banks and research companies that projected that you know that online penetration for grocery in the US might go as high as you know, 10, 11, 12 percent. And yet some people out there are saying it would be 15. Now we're talking, you know, 10 points higher than that, most likely in a few years now. And that represents over a hundred billion dollars of grocery store revenue moving online. Now, some of that is through Instacart, which you know ultimately is still a physical product sold in a physical store at the end of the day, right? 
Um, but a lot of that will go to you know, the websites of some of these brands or some of the aggregators online. And, and that just represents, you know, again, for some of these small brands in a few million in revenue, that just represents a ton of headroom for growth online. Totally, totally. No, that's very true. And I appreciate you giving me the example of uh, the grocery business and, and how that's been really been transformed through COVID in terms of going online. What that also means as well, as you say, you know, in order someone to receive something via Instacart, which is online, your product needs to be in store. So it's not totally online per se, you have to still be in retail as it pertains to that example. What's one thing that you would change as it pertains to venture capital? I think it's been one of the things that obviously is all biased by the current environment, but we, we do try and spend a lot of time with our team teams before we make an investment. I mean, these are, for the most part, longer-term partnerships, right? We've been a little spoiled with some quick exits of late, but I think, uh, you know, and again, particularly in COVID, where it's been hard to spend time face-to-face, but I do wish sometimes, and we try very hard to get to know companies very early. In fact, in the case of House, which we spoke about earlier, you know, we met those founders when they launched, spent a lot of time with them over the last year, year and a half, and it's just a great way to go into an investment. And, and so I think that's one of the things that I think benefits founders and investors is to take a little bit more time to get to know each other. And that's sometimes hard to do in this industry when, you know, rounds get raised very quickly and there's a lot of quite, you know, pressure to move quickly on things. So that's one of the things that, um, that I'd like to change. Thank you. Thank you. And I mean, I totally agree. It's really interesting speaking with other investors around how COVID has maybe disrupted sourcing or due diligence, that whole process of just getting to know founders where it seems like if a founder already had a warm introduction, uh, that was a solid warm introduction or already have like a prior existing relationship, which it seems like you did already with House in your example, that probably COVID hasn't disrupted it as much. But if you don't know the venture capital firm, you don't know the investor, you don't know, you know, on the other side, you don't know the founder, it's really hard to establish that conviction online and to, you know, do everything through Zoom. So I feel like those founders might be getting left behind there. But on the investor side, it is really, really difficult. I can only imagine. So what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question for sure. I mean, over the years, you received so much advice. You know, I think it as it pertains to investing for me anyway, and you asked earlier about portfolio construction, you know, and so much, you know, when you kind of, when you're raised in sort of venture capital, portfolio construction is such a focus, right? It's, you know, portfolio construction is what ultimately drives returns in most funds. So it has to be sort of front and center. But I think the best piece of advice I received around that is, you know, that just because you can't get maybe your target ownership or exactly what you want in a deal doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Meaning if you believe there's the potential for a big outcome, even if it means, you know, building you know position over time, do the deal. If you have that high level of conviction. And I think sort of people are quite disciplined and that's a good thing, but you know, sometimes rules are meant to be broken. And in that case, you know, I, I, I think that's, that's probably the right way to view it. I and mean, that's a piece of advice I received many years ago and something that kind of stuck with me because, you know, in this industry, you can tend to, you know, be quite myopically focused on executing on a strategy, but at the same time, you need to show flexibility. I think that's that's excellent piece of advice. Just because you can't get target ownership doesn't mean you shouldn't do the deal. No, that's that's awesome. If there's going to be an outsized outcome long term, then absolutely you should do the deal. And Franklin, if you want to add anything as well, you're certainly welcome to. No, I think just a different way to say what Andrew was saying is that if, if you know you're not going to lose money on the deal, the only question is how much money are you going to make on it? It's usually it's usually worth doing. Somebody may 
and advice at the same time. I don't know. <laughs> there we go. That's great. It's really great. So what's your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it? So one of our more recent, actually, I think it might be our most recent investment is yeah. Magic Spoon, the serial business. Really great business. I've actually known the founders to the point earlier for a very long time. They had a previous business before that I was a mentor to right when they started. Great guys that I kept in touch with. And yeah, so it's a, a low-carb, high-protein breakfast cereal. Uh, you know, we did some research on the category. And, you know, if you add it all up, roughly a third of Americans today are looking to eat less carbs, whether they're keto or um, the Atkins diet or South Beach diet or just eating a sort of a low-carb diet. Average American eats 100 bowls of cereal a year. Isn't that the stat? Yeah, and then on top of that, you have the average American eats 100 bowls of cereal a year. But if you're low-carb or if you're one of those, you know, one-third of the American public that is trying to reduce carb intake, you really cannot participate in that category. And so Magic Spoon saw that opportunity. They tapped into that nostalgia that a lot of adults in this country actually miss cereal. Uh, and are offering a product that allows them to um, to still enjoy their cereal. So uh, tastes particularly good with Oatly. I highly recommend that. It's only available direct, not on uh, and, not on Amazon, not in retail. Correct, Magic Spoon is only available direct, and and the business is just um, just doing phenomenally well. That is staggering. A hundred bowls of cereal a year for the U.S. consumer averages. Wow, that's amazing. And congratulations. That's absolutely terrific. Um, I don't eat cereal. I haven't tried Magic Spoon, but I do have friends that actually order large quantities of it and absolutely love it. So my final question to you is, what's one piece of advice that you have for founders that are building brands? I think for me, a lot of it is really understanding your consumer and your market. And I, you know, one thing that we see a lot of with founders typically at the seed stage coming in or you know, early A's is they say, and I think they've probably been told to say, you know, our addressable market is X billion, right? And kind of scratch your head and go, well, yes, the total market size of this product might be that, but you know, how much that market actually is addressable to you? Meaning if you segment that and you look at who your consumer is or what your price point is or what your attributes are, how big is that market really? And I think that's, you know, it's hard to know sometimes but now increasingly, you know, because of DTC, you do get a sense for, you know, who's buying in, how often are they buying it, what, what frequency is, et cetera, because it drives so much, right? Per Andrew's earlier point, if a business has the potential to be making it up 50 or $100 million in revenue, that's still a phenomenal outcome and a huge opportunity, but it does dictate how much capital you should raise versus a business that, you know, if you're making it up Uber or, you know, a business that can just be multiple billions in revenue. So I would say that's my one piece of advice is really try and gain an understanding for who your, who your consumer is and how big your addressable market yeah, I think it's, you know, to sort of build on that point, you know, the question that I think they should ask themselves is, you know, are you selling into, are you growing an existing market or are you building a new market, right? Are you going to take market share from the incumbents or is this a new market and people are now going to form a new habit to buy your product? And really understand that because if you're going to be taking market share, knowing what they were buying before and why they're going to buy your product is really important. So, you know, I think sort of having a good understanding of that can be very helpful. I love both those responses. Market size and addressable market is certainly a topic that I've discussed on the show with other guests. And, you know, it's also very hard to predict, right? I remember when I had on Eric Paley, and who's a VC, and he said that, you know, VCs are also notorious for getting market sizing wrong. And, you know, it's just one of those things that can be very, very kind of hard to know. Yeah, I totally agree with both of your sentiments. This is excellent. Well, 
Andrew and Franklin, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Mike. We, we had a great time. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much for your time. It's something we were looking forward to, so we, we're very glad we were able to make it work. And there you have it. It was so great chatting with Franklin and Andrew and having them share their story about Coefficient Capital. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks. Thanks again for listening, folks.